the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is the Tuesday after Labor Day, and trust you had a good, safe, and sane Labor Day weekend, and so uh, here we are to pick up the pieces and uh, head into the uh, the kind of quasi psychological start of uh, the uh, the fall season. I realize that fall is uh, not officially here yet; got a little while to go yet. But yet, uh, I think the sort of idea that well, the summer fun is over with; kids are all back to school now. So let's uh, let's get down to cases, and we're going to do just that on today's edition of Lifeline. We have an election coming up. One week from today, and as Californians go to the ballot place to decide the fate of not just Gavin Newsom, but perhaps of our state, grappling with a number of issues. One of the more controversial statements to come out of this campaign, um, made by uh, my um, colleague Larry Elder, was that we should consider a zero minimum wage. Now, at least some people think that that means folks should work for nothing. There are good reasons behind this idea from an economic standpoint. We're going to break it all down for you. We've asked syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek to join us later on in this hour to kind of talk about what does a zero minimum wage really look like? And have we really gained anything by insisting on a minimum wage at all, and what of the $15 minimum wage? Does just just simply mean more money and less people working? We'll talk about that with Bob Zadek. I want to open up tonight's program with a, a bit of a victory announcement on behalf of our dear friend John MacArthur from Grace to You, of course, senior pastor of Grace Community Church down in Southern California. We've spent some time talking about John's predicament um, insisting that they continue to have the church doors open and the city of Los Angeles getting retaliatory in some really nasty ways. I mean, aside from the fact that they're attempting to essentially muzzle the First Amendment rights of a church, how's this one for you? In a quite retaliatory fashion, the city of Los Angeles decided, okay, if you won't play things our way, we're going to revoke the lease agreement between the church and the city of Los Angeles for a vacant piece of property the church has used for more than 50 years as a parking lot. How's that for being vindictive? Well, there's some good news tonight, and Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer with the Pacific Justice Institute, joins us with the latest. As always, Counselor, we appreciate you carving some time out for us. And uh, there is uh, there is a bit of a... Um, decision here that the county of Los Angeles is not going to like, but it means great news 
for Grace Church and John MacArthur. Tell us more. Certainly. Uh, yeah, this is a very important case. You know, uh, Pastor John MacArthur was very bold uh, when he said, enough is enough, we're having our church service, um, we've been shut down, you know, long enough. And so uh, he opened up, he said, we're going to open up, and then, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Los Angeles County, they came in and said, okay, well, then we're going to punish you, we're not going to let you, uh, you know, lease uh, this, this parking lot anymore. We're going to deliberately revoke your, your, your lease for the parking lot. I mean, it was just a tit-for-tat uh, by, the, by the county. Uh, but John MacArthur stood his ground. Uh, he had great attorneys uh, representing him. And uh, the, the case uh, went on and up and up. And, and, um, and then it became very clear, Craig, that, they, that the, the county and the state of California, Gavin Newsom, were going to lose because the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett, made it very clear, partially in one of our cases that we at PGI brought before the Supreme Court, that the government cannot treat unequally churches, shut them down while allowing pot shops and liquor stores to stay open. Um, it's just, so it's unequal treatment under the law and a violation of the free exercise clause. So uh, the county decided to go ahead and settle. The state of California and the county of Los Angeles agreed to each pay 400000 total of 800000 in prevailing party attorney fees to the church and the pastor. And the pastor, mind, mind you, he was threatened one time with prison, prison sentence, time behind bars, if he did not bow the knee to the county. And he refused to bow that knee. And because of that, uh, freedom and liberty has won. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really great day to celebrate. Do you have a sense that there was, uh, and I want to choose my words wisely here, but do you have a sense that the county of Los Angeles attempted to make a quote-unquote example out of John MacArthur. And I ask that because of the great lengths to which they went um, in, in trying to enforce some of the COVID restrictions, you know, even while it was sort of a lackadaisical enforcement at other public venues, sporting events, things of that sort. But here all of a sudden, this almost hyper-focus on a church a well-known church, a church that's in the media every day, and that perhaps they were trying to, I don't know, make a point and turn the church into an example? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, you're breaking the rules, we're going to fine you. It's a whole different thing. I mean, in my mind, Counselor, it kind of enters into a whole new ballgame, as the saying goes, when you start threatening to jail the pastor or, for no related reason, cancel a 50-year-long lease agreement just because you think it would be a great way to retaliate. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly. This was, you, you hit a nail around the head. It wasn't just, you know, going through the motions. They were trying to make an example of Grace Community Church and Pastor John MacArthur to send a, a chilling uh, effect, have a chilling effect on all churches so that they would not be willing uh, to take the same risk. You know, we right now are still defending a pastor out of Contra Costa County is still being criminally prosecuted uh, for a church service that he had in a small church, and so this kind of these kind of bully tactics, um, bullying is 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 not um, you know it needs to be taken very seriously uh, because uh, it can have a chilling effect. And of course, we're you know we're working hard on on that case to defend that that pastor in in uh, Contra Costa County as we speak. Wow. And certainly a major victory. Now, to break things down, uh, the uh, Thomas More Society had assisted with uh, this particular case. I understand that they're going to get attorney's fees. 
Uh, yes. Then, uh, of course, uh, Grace Community Church will get some money. Uh, do you get the sense, though, even with all of this, that they're going to be made entirely whole, given the amount of harassment, in a sense, the church received during this period of time? Yeah, I think that would not be, they're not going to be entirely whole, I think, just because the harassment, uh, the burns that, that it put upon the church, uh, you know, trying to have services, and it, it was a real, um, uh, you know, t- very taxing time, uh, not just on the church as a whole, but on the pastor, I'm sure. Uh, and yet uh, his, his, his decision to say enough is enough, we're standing firm, we're standing against tyranny, uh, I think in the end, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely glad he did, because he's, it became a model for other churches to, uh, to do the same and to, uh, you know, so if John MacArthur is willing to risk having his church permanently closed down, and him spend time behind bars, then surely we should stand up to our, our recent freedoms and rights as well. Uh, Thomas More did a great job on this case, and um, I, I know it, uh, that many pastors and churches were inspired by it uh, moving forward. And did, in your opinion, do you think this sends a loud enough message to the city of Los Angeles and other cities like it, because I'm, I'm mindful of the fact as we're having this discussion about John MacArthur down south that the same discussion, practically speaking, could be uh, could be had for a Calvary Chapel in San Jose and uh, what uh, what Mike McClure has been dealing with. Uh, oh yes, <laughs> other churches are, are watching this, and other uh, counties and district attorneys are watching this as well. Um, the trend has is clearly the tides have turned, um, and uh, once again the the Supreme Court victory we had last March, I know was a definite part of the turning of that tide. We defended five churches in the San Jose area successfully that were uh, being shut down, and I think that um, the collaborative is we're seeing the bottom line uh, churches prevailing, the counties realizing they crossed the line. Gavin Newsom, I think, realizing he crossed the line, whether he wants to realize it or not. Um, and I think we're going to see some progress now. Of course, the latest wave is defending all these people being required to, to have vaccines that violate their faith and conviction. And, of course, that's another talk for another day. All right. Well, we appreciate the update and uh, certainly good news for uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur. And, uh, again, if you've just joined us a bit late, um, there has been a $800,000 ouch payout after the city of Los Angeles placed restrictions on Grace Church's worship. Um, Both the state of California and the county of Los Angeles reportedly agreeing to pay $800,000 in prevailing party attorney's fees, and a portion of that, of course, uh, will also go to uh, uh, some of the uh, the expenses incurred by um, both Dr. MacArthur and uh, Grace Church. Amazing stuff. There's an update from constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. 516 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation we are. We continue on our uh, look at topics of the day. One of the big topics, as I mentioned at the start of tonight's show, is the fact that we are a scant exact seven days away from the election. It's kind of unusual, a September election and an off election year. But it is, after all, the fate of the governor at stake here. One of the uh, the issues of many that has been discussed by uh, quite frankly, the leading 
Republican challenger Larry Elder, amongst others, is the notion of a zero minimum wage. Now, I know people hear that and think, are you really talking about making people work and not paying them at all? Is that what that means? Well, no, not exactly, although certainly people that want to muddy the waters might try and uh, suggest that idea. But there are broader thoughts in mind when it comes to this notion of setting minimum wage. And we might even need to start with definitions about what minimum wage jobs are all about versus distinctively more skilled labor jobs that demand higher prices because there's more involved and it takes more education, higher degree of skills, et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 while perhaps ancillary to the discussion of the gubernatorial issue um, is, is worthwhile discussing, to the broader degree, it's a discussion that perhaps we need to have, and that is, why do we even set a minimum wage at all? I mean, we don't set minimum prices for automobiles. There's no such thing as a minimum price for renting an apartment, right? It's all set by the market. Well, if the market can manage to find its own way in so many other arenas, why is it necessary for government to determine a minimum wage? Well, who better to talk to this about than Bob Zadek? Bob, of course, is a best-selling author, syndicated talk show host. In fact, he's the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the nation, The Bob Zadek Show, which comes your way every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station here in the Bay Area, 860 a.m. The Answer. Information, by the way, about Bob, resources, his guests, current shows, podcasts, etc., available on Bob's website at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D. D-E-K.com. Meanwhile, Bob, as always, thank you so much for spending some time with us. So when Larry Elder says we need a zero minimum wage, is he trying to tell folks we need to work for nothing? Um, he, he is not, Craig. And thank you very much for teeing up this topic. This topic is the most misunderstood concept since Columbus taught us that the world is not flat. Um, It's that serious a misunderstanding. But before I get into the minimum wage, uh, a minor correction on your intro. You said uh, something like, uh, in about a week or so, we will learn the fate of the governor. Craig, I could care less about the fate of the governor. I care about the fate of the state. Um, so we're going to learn the fate of the state. The governor is just roadkill along the way, as far as I am concerned. <laughs> Who cares what happens to the governor? I really don't care one bit. Um, but I do care about you and me and the other 30-odd million people who reside in our state. So if you'll allow me that minor correction, we can now proceed to the matters before us this day. All right, absolutely. Let me begin by kind of teeing this up in in this fashion. And and again, I I don't want to spend time focusing necessarily on what Larry Elder said, because I think in the end, this is a much broader, deeper discussion that we need to have. But let let me sort of couch it in these terms. We have quite frequently heard people say things like, well, 
McDonald's, or insert name of company here, needs to pay people much more than they do right now. Can they really expect people to make a living, an honest living, at X number of dollars? And my answer to people that pose that question typically, historically, has been no. No, they don't. Because those kinds of jobs are not necessarily designed to build careers and eventually retire from. Back when I was a kid, and granted this was before, you know, fire was invented, (laughs) but back when I was a kid, there were non-skilled entry-level jobs that paid non-skilled entry-level wages that gave you an opportunity to Experience what it was like to have a job to go to every day, answer to a boss, be responsible for uh, discharging certain duties and tasks over the course of whatever it is that you might be doing, waiting on tables, mowing lawns, flipping burgers, whatever. Those jobs are not jobs that people make careers out of, and it was usually an entry-level position. And then once you build a certain degree of job skills and continue matriculating through college or university, you gain more knowledge, more skills, and eventually go on to maybe your your real-life job, so to speak. We somehow have turned that on its head and said, oh, no, everybody doing no matter what needs to make enough money to buy a car, pay for an apartment, and have all the luxury in life. And quite frankly, that, that, that almost sounds like the nanny state as opposed to the free marketplace. Uh, here's my thought. Let me help our friends out there understand how simple the issue of the minimum wage is. I'm going to pose a hypothetical. Let us imagine that by statute, the state of California required that irrespective of how much uh, of the quality of the service in a restaurant, you are required to give your waiter a $15 tip. Now, that's a requirement. Now, what would happen if that was the case? (laughs) Well, the first thing is that people would not patronize lower-priced restaurants because the total cost of the tab is now too high. The cost of the tip would be more than the cost of the food. So people would simply stop patronizing those restaurants, even though that would be their choice. Next thing that would happen would be anybody who wants a job as a waiter in a low-priced restaurant would be rejected. Because the restaurant would say, our customers have stopped coming here because the tips are too high. So what would the restaurant do? The restaurant would want to still sell food, so it would find ways to eliminate the labor by putting in automation, by serving less expensive food, perhaps lower quality food. In other words, it would have to sell food it otherwise wouldn't do if it were allowed to do what it wanted. Customers would make decisions on where to eat, not what their personal preference was, but based upon a dictated cost. The workers who want to be waiters now wouldn't be hired. Well, a few would be hired. There are some waiters who are so good at their job that those few waiters would be hired because they may be worth the $15 tip. So all of the people who want to learn how to be waiters 
but don't have the skills and would never be entitled to a $15 tip, they would never get hired because nobody would want to eat there or they would go to the restaurant and they would say, I want to have your food, but I want the best waiting you got. Since I have to pay any waiter $15, I want to get the most value. Therefore, I only will be served by the best waiter you have. Which means people who are learning how to be waiters would never be hired. Get my point? People who are trying to acquire a skill, but who simply are not worth the minimum wage, will never be hired. Nobody gets hired if they're not worth what they are paid. Applying that, Craig, as you did in the intro, to, let's say, fast food restaurants, which tend to be one of the first places a youngster or anybody would go to learn a skill, they would go to a fast food restaurant because it's easier to succeed there than perhaps to succeed as writing computer code. So you want to learn how to work and learn how to show up for work and how to dress and be courteous to customers. You're learning. You will become good at it. In the beginning, you're terrible at it. You're not worth all that much money. So what the minimum wage law ignores is that when people accept employment, they get a combination, and this is crucial, Craig, of both value in dollars and other value in exchange for their labors. If you are just learning how to work, you are getting an education in how to be an employee. And we all know what that means. It means being courteous, being prompt, show up clean, well-dressed, well-slept, alert, and all that stuff. You have to acquire those skills. That's learning. That's education. You pay for education because it's worth it. And you might pay for education by accepting lower salary because you're getting another benefit not a check, but another benefit, which is an education. Now, if you aren't getting enough education plus dollars, you will not accept the job. So the minimum wage has the effect, all contrary to what is sound policy, of denying people who are not worth $15 an hour, making it much harder may be impossible for them to ever be employed because nobody buys something that's not worth the money, including an hour of somebody's labor, which means people who, who say, look, I know I'm only worth $7 an hour, but I will willing to work for $7 because that's all that I am worth. I aspire to be worth $70 an hour. But I have to learn. In the meanwhile, while I am learning, let me please get into the game. Let me be paid exactly what I am worth today, and as I am worth more, I will be paid more. That's the way it's supposed to work. That is the insidious effect of minimum wage. It tells people who are simply not worth $15, it is against the law for you to be hired. Now, how does that benefit anybody? Well, it really doesn't. And and further to your point, uh, the, the wages are also based on, as you're suggesting, commensurate to the job level skills, the experience. And there is a degree, and ask any small business owner, and of course, typically the problem with people who make these arguments for higher and higher and higher 
minimum wages, have never owned a business in their life. They have no idea what it means to order products, to be able to assemble or provide products and services to customers, pay employees, etc., etc. They just think, oh, magically, if you own a business, you must be wealthy and therefore get out the checkbook. But let me argue this another way, and we can dive deeper into this when we come back after the break. If Jobs are not paid commensurate to experience, skill level, and the nature of product that's being produced. Then does the argument hold true, or should it hold true, that, say, for example, in San Francisco, where we're based, where the median home price is a million six hundred thousand and change, okay? In order to qualify to own that home, and I think we would all agree that, that people should be able to have an enjoyable comfortable home that meets their needs. So if we equate that further to home ownership, that means that to be able to qualify to purchase that median home in San Francisco, we're not talking Pacific Heights, we're just talking the median price of a home, million six hundred thousand and change, you would need to earn $305,000 a year. Now, is anybody listening to this program want to make the argument that in order to bring about fairness and parity, and I'm doing the math here for you real quick, 2080, that a worker at McDonald's, in order to qualify to own a home, should be paid the equivalent of $146 an hour. Now, if we were to make that argument... Do you have any idea how expensive that order of fries and a burger would be? It would price most reasonable people out of the market to say, you want me to pay $80 for a burger, $60 for a burger? There's no way. So there's a fundamental disconnect that we're seeing here in the argument that we need to push minimum wages higher and higher and higher until what? To arrive at what standard? And we're still... When you look at this at a national level, where the median price in California, San Francisco, for a home would be a million six, but that very same home transplanted to, say, Colorado, might be in the $300,000 range. And yet you want the same minimum wage level across the country in spite of significantly different costs of living. After a while, it's not very long before this whole argument begins to fall apart like a cheap suit. We'll come back with more. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. We're talking zero minimum wage and what that really means. Bob is the host of The Bob Zadek Show. You can catch his program on 860 AM The Answer, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. More information available on the web at bobzadek.com. Time out. Back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're stirring it up tonight with Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show. Catch him on the air here in the San Francisco Bay region. Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. Details again on the web about his syndicated program, books, authors, podcasts, other resources. BobZadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Uh, we are dipping our toe in the water of some controversy here today, as we are often wont to do. Um, part of this conversation spurred on by comments made by Republican candidate for governor 
Larry Elder, that there should be a zero minimum wage. And, of course, it's got people bleeding hearts, clutching their pearls. Oh, my goodness, what would happen? People would be forced out into the streets if you asked them to work for nothing. Well, of course, that's not what zero minimum wage means. What it does mean is allowing the marketplace to figure out where that number ought to be. And it's based on a variety of factors, very few of which can really be mandated by government. Because as I suggested earlier, if you somehow arrive at the conclusion that, well, minimum wage ought to be enough to be able to buy a house, for example, well, if you're in San Francisco, that's going to be a pretty expensive job flipping hamburgers to earn the $305,000 a year it takes to qualify for a $1.6 million median-priced home in the city of San Francisco. And it goes from the ridiculous to the sublime and back again. Bob, let's talk a bit about how this notion of minimum wage in certain communities that have forced it, uh, in the end, really equates to fewer employees and fewer hours because the fact of the matter is a lot of small businesses just can't afford to pay people that kind of money. Craig, a second ago, you teed up the issue as you asked the rhetorical question, how do we figure out what the minimum wage ought to be? Of course, that's that's not really the question. The way we figure it out is not to have one. And the minimum wage is cruel and unfair for a lot of reasons. Uh, and let me, it seems like it's fair. Let's give people more money so they can buy things they now can't afford. That kind of seems like it's generous and big-hearted. But let me explain how wrong you are if you believe you are being generous. First of all, the history of minimum wage is as ugly as economic history can be. There was no minimum wage for the first hundred and something years of our history. Do you know how the minimum wage started with Craig, rhetorical question? It started when, at about the beginning of the 20th century, there was the great migration of blacks leaving the Jim Crow South and going to the Northeast and to the, and to the Midwest to seek better paying jobs. And they were accustomed to being paid almost nothing. And they wanted to get into the mainstream. So as the Great Migration started, it was mostly blacks, of course, uh, they would work for much less than white people. They were accustomed to that, and they wanted the work. So they started to populate construction sites and lesser skilled labor because they didn't have a lot of skills. And all of a sudden, the white guys started to lose jobs to blacks who would do the very same job for less money. Sounds like immigration opposition, doesn't it? Yep, it's the same thing. Only now it was domestic immigration of south to north. Well, how do the white people prevent blacks who are willing to work for less from taking their jobs away? Easy. They said, let's establish a minimum wage, which is higher than the blacks are willing to work for. 
So then if we do that, now the white employer who has got to pay a higher wage than the black is willing to work for, the employer says, oh, well, since I have to pay a higher amount, there's no benefit to me at hiring the black, so I'll just hire a white guy. And that way, using racism, they priced the blacks out of jobs. That's, my friends, is the history of the minimum wage law in this country, and it's not very pretty. And what's happening today is the minimum wage law is a form of wealth transfer. Wealth transfer is a concept that I hope our listeners are sensitive to. A wealth transfer is a situation where government requires that one person is compelled to give some of their money to another person. How ugly does that sound? But it's true. Let's apply it to the minimum wage. Somebody is worth $7 an hour as a waiter or as a worker at a fast food restaurant. But the restaurant is not allowed to pay that person $7 an hour, must pay that person 15 So what does the restaurant do? It raises its prices. So then along comes Bob and Craig to buy their food in the restaurant, and all of a sudden our price went up. Why did our price that we pay go up? Because the government compelled the worker to be paid $15 an hour. We have to absorb our share of that increased price. Thus, through government compulsion, we are required to write a check or make a payment of our money to this employee, not because the employee is worth it, but because of a law. It is a compulsory but invisible wealth transfer. Why does government love it? Because government gets the benefit of forcing us to pay money to total strangers, so government gets its benefit, which it could have gotten by raising taxes, but it gets folded out of office if it raises taxes. So by building the minimum wage, it accomplishes the same thing as welfare, but they're not part of the problem. Because to us, it's the restaurant that raised their prices, but the restaurant didn't raise their prices voluntarily. They did under compulsion. So minimum wage laws are a way that government, in the background, causes money to be paid from one citizen to another under compulsion, not because the recipient is worth it, but because of a law. That's how ugly minimum wage is. And if you support minimum wage laws, you support the involuntary, the compulsive transfer of money from one innocent person to a recipient. The innocent person did nothing wrong to compel the transfer. The recipient did nothing right to earn it. It's wrong at both levels. So if you save a minimum wage, you favor the government pointing a gun to our head and forcing us to transfer some of our money to a total stranger. Now, try as you might to defend minimum wage, you cannot defend it against that explanation. 
Well, and, and, and there's a current example that I think is demonstrative of just how problematic all of this can be. Uh, witness for the fact, and we've, there's been a bunch to do about this topic on the news lately, that the, uh, the so-called $300 weekly COVID boost is coming to an end. During the course of the pandemic, if you were eligible for the highest amount of unemployment, 450 a week, that plus the $300 a week COVID boost meant that at the end of the day, you could be bringing home on a monthly basis a cool $3,000 a month. Now, when we hear that restaurants are having to close early, limiting the number of hours, limiting the number of days a week that they are open, and other businesses that are struggling to try and find employees, why? Well, even if they're enjoying the quote-unquote $15 an hour minimum wage, which at, at 40 hours a week would be earnings of, these are gross numbers, $2,400 a month, it's difficult to compete receiving $2,400 a month for working 40 hours a week versus staying at home and doing nothing and earning $3,000 a month. And it, it we're creating, in a sense, an artificial crisis here because people look at the raw numbers and say, wait a minute, I can work for $2,400 a month or I can stay home and do nothing and make three grand. Well, that's a non-starter. I know exactly what I'll do. I'll stay home and do nothing. And so as a result, it's having downward pressure on smaller businesses because they can't compete. They can't even begin to compete with $15 an hour, let alone um, the equivalent of $3,000 a month in wages. And again, we're not suggesting that people not receive due compensation for the work that they do, that they shouldn't be able to uh, to earn a, a wage of some sort. But I don't know necessarily that every single job that is out there is always going to qualify for the quote-unquote minimum living wage, particularly when, as I suggested earlier, in some cases, that is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think, Bob, part of the problem with this is that these numbers are so terribly arbitrary that is it any wonder we can't figure out how to come up with a reasonable way to be able to provide some minimum compensation when, as you suggest, the most reasonable way is just to let the marketplace do what it does best. There is nothing wrong with the simple concept that everybody gets paid what they are worth. All of us try to do that in our private life. When we go to sell something on eBay, we are seeking to get the most we can for what we are selling, and the buyer is seeking to pay as little as they can get away with and still get what they want. And nobody knows exactly what that is. The market will tell you what something is worth. That is the only test of what anything is worth is what a willing buyer is willing to pay and a willing seller is willing to accept. That's the only test of what something is worth. For government to dictate what something is worth they can just as well pick $50 an hour. There's no, it, it's not a wage. It's a mandated payment and nothing else. And once the market gets distorted, then we have consequences, as I have explained, which is somebody who is desperate for a job. But just is it worth that much? Some people just aren't worth $15 an hour. They don't contribute to their employer 
enough value to justify $15. Now, that person who is only worth $13 an hour will be prevented from working. And just imagine the worker. Imagine the worker who says, I really need a job. I'm desperate. And I am willing to accept. Please hire me. I'm willing to work for $13 an hour because I know that's what I'm worth. And the employer says, no, you all, I would like to hire you and I'm willing to pay you $13, but we'll both go to jail. So I am willing to hire you for $13. The worker is willing to accept $13. Yet along comes the state of California and says, if you do that, you go to jail. An adult without compulsion is willing to accept it. An adult without compulsion is willing to pay it. And yet that bargained for exchange. Two consenting adults without being coerced will go to jail if they shake hands and say you got a deal. Now, imagine, Craig, you're trying to sell a used car on eBay. And imagine the government passes a law that says no used car can be sold anywhere in the country for less than $5,000. And imagine you have a clunker that's only worth $3,000. And you're willing to accept $3,000 because that's all it is worth and you really need the money. Can you imagine that you can't sell your car for $3,000 because the government has passed a statute and said your car cannot be sold for less than $5,000 because that's not fair to the people with bad cars. So we have to compel $5,000. So that person has something, this car, which it no longer needs, which is utterly useless economically. Well, that's the worker who's not worth $15. Their $13 an hour labor, labor cost is utterly useless. Could you imagine, Craig, you want to work, you're worth $13 an hour, and society has said, you cannot sell your services for $13 an hour. You're only worth 13 so you're not going to be hired. And therefore, Mr. $13 an hour worker, you are useless. You might as well commit suicide because you have a product, $13 an hour labor, that nobody is allowed to buy. Imagine that, Craig. Telling an adult you have something that nobody is allowed to buy from you, even though you want to sell it. It is cruel. It is it is vindictive, and it punishes what Frederick Bassiat called the unseen. There are unseen victims of minimum wage laws. Those people who want to work, who are not worth $15 an hour and cannot be hired. Nobody sees them. They're invisible. All you see is all these people who are being overpaid, but you don't see the people who don't get hired. It's cruel, Craig. Let me let me ask you this, Bob, as our, our time is winding to a close here as we near the top of the hour. Is there a economic or moral equivalency here to the notion of price fixing? Now, we know historically when the government has gotten involved in price fixing, a lot of the, the ancillary or accompanying 
problems that it creates include shortages, rationing, certainly product quality goes out the window. It creates a uh, an environment that encourages uh, you know illicit buying and selling black markets, things of that sort. So price fixing artificially always tends to have a very dilatorious impact on the markets for that particular good and service. Is there a degree that there's a moral equivalent here in the sense of, of that also being true when it comes to price fixing of wages? Craig, you nailed it with that question. You're exactly right. It is price fixing. Um, the last president to really try to fix prices was um, Nixon, if you Nixon. recall. Nixon, yep. he, he thought he, he was misled and he thought, well, the way to prevent inflation is to just make it go to jail if you raise your price. Oh, dear. We just lost Bob Zadek. I just watched the call drop. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to apologize to Bob for uh, losing him there. Give him a call back. Let him know we're we're on the cusp of being out of time here anyway, would you? But so he knows we didn't... We didn't hang up on uh, maybe AT and T or somebody cut the call because they uh, weren't getting enough for per hour rate. At any rate, uh, Bob Zadek dives into these and similar topics every Sunday on his show, the Bob Zadek Show. It comes your way here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area Sunday mornings on. 8.60 a.m. The Answer. We invite you to tune in. He always has uh, star-studded guests, a lot of really smart people that help uh, work through many of the challenges of the day and help you better understand um, what all that means. So uh, check him out, Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 8.60 a.m. The Answer. And again, more information available, resources too, on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Let's get a look at traffic for you right this now. This report is sponsored by Angie. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.